And let's pray before we turn to God's word this morning. Father, we do pray that you would take your eternal word and that you would bathe our hearts and our minds with it this morning. We pray that we would know that it is your voice that speaks to us. And may this word be living and active among us. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Colossians 3. I'm going to back up. Just to read a little bit, back up in verses 9, and we'll go through verse 17. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, like many of you, uh, I love sports. If only there had been some big sporting event this weekend to watch. Uh, I love, when I was a kid, I loved playing soccer. I loved playing football, and I always enjoyed watching football, especially I like those kind of drag-em-out games where there's a lot of running plays and hard hits and like those low-scoring affairs, you know, those kind of 14 to 10 kind of games are the ones I like. But one sport has always seemed to be a part of my life more than others, and it was a sport I was awful at. I had No ability in whatsoever, but uh, I tried it for a while, and then I decided I was much better just watching it. And my little brain as a kid watched way too many games for a growing, maturing brain. And I continue to watch games every once in a while now. I don't get to watch as many as I did when I was a kid, but often when Leah is getting ready for bed at night, uh, I may open my iPhone and have a little app on there where I can catch a good baseball game. I love seeing baseball in person more than any other game. There's just something that's relaxing about it that just kind of calms my soul with the simplicity of the game and yet also its complexity. But baseball has a special place in my heart. Now you know I'm a Cubs fan. 
and any self-respecting baseball fan would be a Cubs fan. Uh, I have tried to understand over the years why anybody would ever be a Tampa Bay Rays fan or why somebody would be an Arizona Diamondbacks fan or a Milwaukee Brewers fan. I don't understand it. I understand it a little bit if you were raised in one of those cities, but if you weren't, why in the world would you root for a team like that when you have the opportunity to root for a historic, glorious team like the Chicago Cubs? And yet, having said that, I do understand why someone might choose to be a fan of one team, and that's the New York Yankees. It pains me to say it, but they are probably just as much a historic team as the Chicago Cubs. And so I understand if someone wants to root for the Yankees. They have quite a tradition. You know, in baseball, many players will jump at the chance to play for the New York Yankees because the Yankees are such a historic team. And there are many perks that come with it. When you play with the Yankees, you are... are not only playing for a historic team, but you're playing in a major metropolitan urban area, and so there are all kinds of media deals, endorsement deals you can do, and so you can make all kinds of extra money, and the Yankees pay more money than most other teams. But most players want to play for the Yankees because they want to play for the team that Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Mickey Mantle played for. You know, there are other things that come with being a New York Yankee, though. The Yankees have requirements if you're a New York Yankee. They don't allow you to have long hair. So if you have hair that goes down below your collar and you get traded to the New York Yankees, you better make an appointment with a barber because you can't have long hair. The Yankees also don't allow you to have beards as a New York Yankee player. The Yankees alone, they, they have requirements. There are things that are to mark New York Yankee players. It's just part of being a Yankee. What marks them? Well, what's to mark Christian? I guess is that if you ask people in our culture today, unfortunately, probably the first answer that people would give if you said, what marks an evangelical Christian, they would probably say it's someone that votes Republican and is conservative in politics. Though that may be true of many of us, that is sad that that is what most people probably think in our culture when they hear the word evangelical Christian. The second is my guess would be if you ask people what marks evangelicals, they would probably say that Christians are people that don't do certain things. They aren't marked by certain things. That old line, a Christian is a person who doesn't dance or drink or smoke or chew or go with the girls that do is what I think many people think of Christians. We're just Yankees who have taken those rules to a little further extreme. Nothing in that rhyme may be true. There are things we don't do. We saw that a few weeks ago that there are things that we're not meant to do. Verse 5 through 11 Those things are not to mark us. They are to be thrown off. But being a Christian is not just about throwing things off. It's not just about getting rid of those old vices, those things that did mark us. We're not just against things. We're for things. We're not just not things. We're something. 
so Paul turns us to that this morning. You know, if a singing this morning, if a woman applied for an IT job and she was applying for that job and on that job application form they had on that form, they said, you know, what are some of the marks or strengths that you have that we should consider you for this job? And if she wrote down, well, I, I, uh, I don't hate computers. My mom doesn't type my papers anymore. And I've chosen to give up online games at work. And you were the person that was hiring. You would look at that and you would say, huh, but, but do you like working with computers? Uh, can you actually type? And, and do you actually have a work ethic? You, you would want to know what, what are the things that mark her? As Christians, we're not just putting off, but we're equally putting on. I keep telling Leah this. She is opposed to me having a long beard. I want a long beard. I, I think it's my right, having a bald head, I should be able to have a long beard, something I can stroke and, and do this since I can't do this. And My daughter is convinced. She told me one day, she said, Daddy, I think you should have a long beard. I said, thank you, sweetie. I Appreciate that. Why do you think that? She said, because all the great pastors in history had long beards. John Calvin, John Knox. That's right. It just helps you to think a little better, have a long beard, something you can stroke. You aren't just about putting off, but putting on. Paul says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He then list five virtues that the Christian is to be adorned with, that we are to put on. And I want to look at this passage this morning where Paul details what we are to look like. We, as Christians, are to have the virtues of Christ adorning us, adorning our lives, the peace of Christ ruling our hearts, and the word of Christ filling our fellowship. So the virtues of Christ adorning our lives, the peace of Christ ruling our hearts, and the word of Christ Filling our fellowship. First, the virtues of Christ are to adorn our lives. If you look back up to verse 5, and then you look again there in verse 8, you will see that Paul lists five vices in each of those verses. Vices that you and I are to throw off, that we are to get rid of, and that the Christian is no longer to wear. And now he gives, in our verses here, in verse 12, he gives five virtues that the Christian is to wear. But before he does so, Paul uses some pregnant terms. Look at verse 12. He calls them God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And this is covenantal language. This echoes Deuteronomy 7. Let me read that to you, where the Lord has established the nation. He has called them out. He's given them his law. And then he says this to them. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God chose you. To be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Paul is taking these terms that referred to Israel and he is using them to speak about Gentile Christians. You're holy. You're set apart. You're the beloved of God. The church is the new Israel. And just as Israel was to be holy as its God is holy, so the church is to be holy as its God is holy, Paul is saying. 
So you put on these things. You look like this. How is a Christian to look? We're to look like him. Like God. Isn't that what Paul says in verse 10? Having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Christians, we are strange in this world. Because we are being renewed for the world to come. A new creation has broken in and we are being remade in the likeness of our creator, our Lord. We are to look like him. All these virtues which Paul lists here, they, they are exemplified in Christ. As much as I want to look like John Calvin and John Knox with that beard, I even more so want to look like Christ. My wife's on board with that one. No Christian doesn't. To look like the one who, who is the model of all beauty and all goodness and all glory to us. Just to look more like Him. Greatest motivation for holiness. Look at these five virtues of Christ that are to adorn our lives. It's absolutely fascinating to me. That of all the virtues that Paul could have listed, he lists these five. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Do you catch what, what makes these unique? What binds these together? I think Paul could have listed so many things. He could have said prayerfulness. He, he could have said diligence. But he lists all of these, and these are all qualities, or these are all things, all virtues that require the community. They require the community of faith, the church. Isn't that fascinating? So many Christians think the Christian life is just about them and God. But in Paul's understanding, in the New Testament's understanding, the Christian life is lived in the Christian community. Our holiness is not some merely private exhibition, but rather is a community project. So he first lists compassion. It is literally the bowels of compassion, the same word that is used over and over to refer to God. He is the God of all compassion, the God of all mercy. Paul says, put on kindness. There's also a quality of God in the Psalms, especially as he lives in relationship with his covenant people. Kindness, a, a consistent readiness to help, to give yourself to others. Humility, not thinking too highly of yourself, putting the, uh, the interests of others before yourself, not seeking your own way, your own desires. Not seeking glory, not seeking recognition. Meekness, one of the very marks of Jesus' rule and reign. A gentleness that, that keeps strength and that keeps passion under control. And patience. I, I love the Greek word for patience. Because it literally means long-suffering. Long-suffering. 
putting up with, bearing with, willing to endure with others. We could spend a long time fleshing out all of these five virtues. But I just commend to you this afternoon, this is a good Lord's Day afternoon exercise. You sit down with those five virtues and you pray for, through them. and You think through them. You meditate upon them. And you ask the Lord to search you with them. We're talking about family likeness here. Displaying the very virtues of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very image of the invisible God. New creation has broken in. We've been raised with Him. J.I. Packer once said that regeneration is glorification in the seed, and sanctification is glorification in the bud, and glorification in heaven is the full flower. And we are to be marked by glorification in the bud, awaiting glorification in heaven, which is the full flower. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Adorn yourself with them. Put them on. Isn't it shocking sometimes to find out that we aren't marked by these virtues as much as we think we are? I can sit at home all by myself and feel pretty darn good. Then get in the midst of some people and you realize that what you thought was there isn't quite there or isn't as strong as you thought it was. It is in the community where they get tried. It's where they're shown or where they're not shown to clothe us. A soldier can be an excellent shot on a rifle range. But it's not there that he's tested as a soldier. It's on the battlefield when the bullets are flying by his head and whizzing by him and the adrenaline is flowing and he is anxious and his life is in peril, and he is surrounded by comrades, and he is confronted with enemies, that's when he's shown whether he is a good shot, whether he's a sniper, or whether he's just a marksman. Passion is easy to contemplate when we don't have to confront that person that we feel like, ah, they know better than to be in the mess that they're in. Kindness isn't That hard when you aren't around rude people. Humility comes easily when there's no one around to compare yourself with. Meekness doesn't seem so difficult until someone disrespects me. Patience. Incredibly patient. Myself. And those kids come running into the room. Someone just demands something from you, requires, needles you. As Christians, we are to have the virtues of Christ adorning our lives, and they are worked out in community. This is a very small example, but it has always stuck in my head. Uh, I went to a seminary uh, down in Dallas. And the president of the seminary when I was there was Chuck Swindoll. And Chuck Swindoll is is a good preacher and noted as a preacher. And he was really brought in. He was a graduate of the seminary. He was brought in to raise money for the seminary and really to get them on some good financial footing. But by his own admission, he's no academic. 
One of the great professors at the seminary I went to is a man by the name of Daryl Bach. And in the world of scholarship and in the world of theology, Daryl Bach is considered one of the top three or four New Testament scholars in the world. He is the authority on the Gospel of Luke. And Leah and I, for a while, we attended a Bible church there in Dallas, and it was a, a, a small church for Dallas standards. It was about 250 people, and we were in this church, and this is a church that Daryl Bach was an elder in. And he taught a Sunday school class, and he taught the Gospel of Luke in that Sunday school class. And so we would sneak in the back just so excited that we were getting to sit under the teaching of this scholar, this world-renowned scholar every week and hear him teach on this book that he is considered the authority on. He was also at the time the president, not of a seminary, but of the Evangelical Theological Society, which is the premier society for theologians in our circle. Is the president. And we were sitting there, and this woman walked up before class, and she walked up to him, and she said, a woman that we had seen in that class every week we had been there, she walked up to him, and she said, hey, Daryl. He said, yes. She said, I was listening to the radio the other day. I was listening to Chuck Swindoll. And she said, he said something about a Daryl. And I said to myself, I know a Daryl. And then he kept talking. He said something about a Daryl Bach. And she said, I said to myself, I know a Daryl Bach. And she said, Daryl, do you know Chuck Swindle? And he just said, yes, he signs my paychecks. I thought, here was this woman who has sat in this class for months under one of the greatest scholars in the New Testament world, and he's teaching her the gospel of Luke. She didn't even know, and he didn't bother pointing it out. He just signs my paychecks. There's humility in the community. It's tested in that moment. There was kindness. He could have thumped her, but he didn't. There was meekness. a wonderful, wonderful example of all of these traits for a proud young seminarian that was sitting in the back of that class. The greatest test of whether we are truly marked by these virtues, though, is probably when we are sinfully or unthoughtfully or uncaringly affected by others in the body. And in fact, they are proven in such times, and some of you have had Plenty of opportunities to show forth Christ and His glory in the church. Some of you have had incredibly hard seasons and painful seasons in the body. And so it's no surprise that Paul immediately says in verse 13 that he addresses this need. He says, forgive one another. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the recipients of forgiveness, we are to be extenders of forgiveness. Verse 13, it, it begins with a phrase that seems a little easier than the forgiving. He says, bear with one another. That is, put up with one another. And, and we may think, well, this person or that person in the church, that's about all I can do. Put up with them. Bear with them. 
Paul doesn't allow it to sit there. There's that old rhyme. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. Paul doesn't just leave us with put up with one another. He calls us to forgive one another. Why? Not because the person is deserving. Not because the person has made sufficient amends. Not because they pleaded enough, but because he says we have been forgiven. That's the ground. That's the motivation. That's the source. That understanding will drastically alter your interactions with others in the body of Christ. Having experienced forgiveness that required an infinite price, we willingly extend forgiveness, though it cost us a little. We have a reservoir to draw from. This is practical Christian living. And above all these, Paul says in verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We think about New York Yankees players. How is it that you identify them? Well, it's not for a lack of a beard or because they don't have long hair. If that was the case, I'd be playing right field in Yankee Stadium. But it's rather because they're wearing the uniform. that They have the white clothes with the black pinstripe. Everyone knows that. I was listening to a comedian the other day. He was talking about us as sports fans, and he said, you know, he said it has always dumbfounded him that we will root for this player, this player we will absolutely love when he is on our team, and all of a sudden he's traded to another team, and we can't stand that player. We hate that player. We cheered for him here and we booed for him there. And he said, what happened? He's the same man. All he did was change his shirt. We're not rooting for people. We're rooting for laundry, is what he said. Probably right. But the color matters. Color matters. And love is the color of the Christian's uniform. It colors everything about us. Love is the crowning grace of the Christian's life. Don't you let this culture sappiness with love cause you to roll your eyes when you hear that a Christian is to be marked by love. Don't you allow them to steal love from us. We're to be marked by it. Because our God is marked by it. That is our virtue. It is a distinctly Christian virtue because it is our Lord's virtue. No one has it like we have it. For in this we know love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. We know love unlike any other on the face of the earth. And we are to be marked by love ways that surpass anybody else on the face of the earth. It is to dominate our community together. Distinct. You know, a very uncommon love. And so Paul says, love binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
I think of love as that yeast in the fellowship that makes everything else grow and rise to perfection and harmony in Christ. As Christians, we are to have the virtues of Christ adorning our lives. Next, notice that the Christian is to have the peace of Christ ruling our hearts. Verse 15. This is often misunderstood. Paul asserts that the peace of Christ is to rule our hearts. And what he's talking about is not that, that feeling of peace, that, that sense of peace, but rather he has in mind here the peace in our fellowship, the peace in the church as we gather together. Notice he qualifies it. He says, to which indeed you were called in one body. That is, peace is to be the arbiter in our dealings with one another. It's the judge among us, the peace of Christ. Our, our differences will be brought out as, as we come together. And the peace of Christ is that which is to, to jump up and jump in and mediate when there are differences. It rules here. I told you I'd apologize to those of you that don't like sports. But in baseball, and that Ground ball is hit, and there's a runner on third, and that person is running to first base, and the shortstop picks up that ball, and he fires at first base, and that ball gets there right about the same time that that player is touching first base. Well, as kids, we would argue. We'd say, he was out, he was safe, he was out, he was safe. And sometimes it will happen in the major leagues too. You have the dugouts come out, the coaches will come out, and they'll be arguing, it's out, he was safe. And then the umpire says, done, settled, ascension is over, when Christ occupies our lives, the peace of Christ will rule our fellowship, it's the arbiter, it's the umpire, it, it inserts itself and it says, done, no more dissension, you look back to verse 11, where he says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I think Paul especially has in mind that as we're coming together as the body of Christ, we're, we're so different, made up in different ways. But there is to be a peace here amidst all of our differences that the world cannot even comprehend. We come from different ethnicities, different races, different cultures, different classes, but our differences aren't what mark us. As Christians, we have the greatest thing in common. Christ is in all of us. We have Christ. So peace rules our heart. Can we mention this since we are in the midst of chaos in our culture in this realm? Is that the church, the church has the great answer. To racism, sexism, and classism. We have the great answer. We are to exemplify it. 
We have the answer in that we believe that everyone was created in the image of God. Everyone has inherent dignity and worth, whether they are on the streets of Manila or whether they are living in the mansions of Park Avenue, whether they are in the womb or whether they are on their way to the grave. But even more than that, even more than that, in the body of Christ, we bring together, as Paul says here, Greek and Jew, barbarian and Scythian, we could say poor and rich and black and white and even Wolverine and Scorpion. We are the most heterogeneous body that the universe will ever see because we will be gathered before his throne, every tongue, tribe and nation. And yet we are also the most homogeneous body that the universe will ever see because we are all filled with the same spirit. Identified with the same So we dare not reject each other. Dare not look down on each other. Because if you do, you reject Christ. And you look down upon Christ. That is why racism and sexism and whatever us-ism has no place here. So Paul says, be thankful. Love that. Be thankful. For what, Paul? One another. Thankful for one another. Not only to love each other, we are not only to forgive each other, but we are to be thankful to God for each other. My, how that changes things. We begin to be thankful. Finally, as Christians, we are to the word of Christ filling our fellowship. He says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We are the people of the word, of Christ's word, so we teach it. And notice how Paul is pointing out in this part of the letter how we teach it. It's through our song. Isn't that interesting? I'm thankful to labor with John. Uh, John understands this. Uh, he is a wonderful musician and is always looking for songs that we can sing that are good musically. But whenever he has a new song, he and I sit down and he wants to know, is the theology good? Is this word centered? Is this true? And we do that. Every Tuesday morning, we get together. Tuesday afternoon, we get together, and we look through, and we talk about the order of worship, and he'll often bring a new song, and we hash through it together. It's accurate, according to the Word of God. Because you see, when we sing, we're not only singing praise to God, we're not only giving adoration to God, we're not only ascribing the glory that is due His name, but we're instructing one another. I'm teaching you, and you're teaching me. That's what's happening. We're doing it by the words that we sing. Paul says it's to, to issue forth from a heart filled with thanksgiving. You're so filled with the thankfulness for what God has done for you in Christ, the grace of Christ that, that pouring forth from your mouth are the words of Christ because you're giving me the very best thing I can ever receive from you, the word of God. 
you're receiving it from me. Give each other the best. So we sing these songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. The Word of God, it fills our fellowship together. We want to do everything to the glory of Christ, and that is how Paul ends it. Whatever we do, he says in verse 17, whether in word or deed, we want to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, speaking about our life together, we're united to Christ together. We've taken his name. We're identified with him. So we want our lives and our behaviors and our actions and our words and our deeds to be in accordance with him. Individually, also as a body. A body that's gathered together. We're to help each other in this. May we grow together as God's people. Marked with Christ's virtues adorning our lives. The peace of Christ ruling our hearts. And the word of Christ filling our fellowship. I'm going to sing one of my favorite hymns. Grace Spalding likes to give me trouble about this hymn. Because I like it so much. She told me this weekend, she said that uh, when she gave John all the list of all the songs that we know at URC, she wrote next to this one, Jason really likes this one because he asks for it all the time. But I love it. We are God's people. Because I have found that as I've gone on in the Christian life, I not only find myself more dependent upon God, but I find myself more dependent upon you. I love this hymn. We're going to sing this. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we are thankful. We're thankful that you are God and that you have made us your people. Oh, we would shine forth Christ before one another, before the watching world, before your throne. Even now, would you unite us in song that we might sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs instructing one another according to your word, for your glory. In Christ's name.